probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome to The Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me this week is... Uh, hello, this is Blake Myers from the Buried Alive Film Festival, and it's a good time to be here. Thanks, Harper. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. It sounds like a lot of fun. This is a great scene. These are some beautiful minutes from an amazing movie. Oh, yes. We've got a good one to talk about for sure. Um, and before we get into that, uh, I did want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about kind of what you do. And, um, you know, there, there's some good reasons why I, uh, you know, wanted to have you on the show for, for these, uh, these awesome minutes of the movie. So tell us a little bit about kind of, um, you know, what you do and about the film festival. All right. Yeah, man. I'm... Um... I've worked in various different uh, positions, all sorts of movies for years now. I started off wanting to do special effects, and um, I did the effects for the amateur night sequence on VHS with the uh, I Like You Scary Girl <laughs> and who, who bites off wieners and, and people get compound fractures. That one was fun. And I also did special effects for uh, Yellow Brick Road. And um, since then, I've also turned into more of a set dresser and um, a buyer. And I've been set dressing and decorating sets, or not decorating, but you know, putting the stuff where it goes on The Walking Dead for seven years. So that's the, what I'm doing in the industry. Yeah, that's a pretty awesome gig right there, man. <laughs> it's fun making the apocalypse. <laughs> so, um, and tell us a little bit about the uh, film festival. Oh, and then, you know, past couple of years, me and my buddy Lucas Godfrey, he was starting this, uh, the Atlanta Horror Film Festival. Then we decided to jazz it up and call it the Buried Alive Film Festival. We've been running it that way for about eight years. Uh, we scour the world looking for the most disturbing, scary, weird, bizarro films we can find. We love psychotronic. We love bizarro. And, um, you know, it's over the years, it's looked for us trying to find films and find films. And now all the films are starting to come to us. It's really nice. It's a, it's a good time being in the front seat of the world's most craziest movies. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It's definitely one of my favorite film festivals and, and easily my favorite horror film festival. I've, I've gotten to go to a couple uh, different festivals over the years, but Buried Alive is always my favorite one to go back to. You guys pick some very interesting and crazy movies. And, you know, it's always awesome to see some good horror shorts from around the world, too. Well, I started uh, programming movies back in the day at Georgia State at Cinefest Film Theater, where I got a real idea of like, you know, what it takes to put on a good show and uh, find interesting programming that's diverse and bizarre and really shows off the weirdness of humanity. So I don't know. That's the that's what we're trying to do at Buried Alive, and it's it's a good time, and we hope uh, everyone in Atlanta has, comes out and has fun. Yeah, for sure. I definitely can recommend it. So if you're in the Atlanta area, definitely check that out. By, by the time this episode comes out, I think it will probably have passed, but um, you can definitely check out the website. Uh, is, it's buriedalivefilmfest.com, right? Buriedalivefilmfest.com. Awesome. So yeah, please, everybody who's listening, check that out and, and you know make it a point to go uh, next year if you can. And um, I'll be putting some reviews up on geekrex.com too of, of uh, some of the best movies that I get a chance to see at the fest this year too. So definitely give that a, uh, give that a read as well. 
Now, uh, I guess this we might as well go ahead and get into this one because this is probably going to be a, a big one. So uh, today we're talking about minute 76 of The Thing, which begins with the uh, that cool kind of split focus shot of the scalpel still in um, Clark's hand like we left off last last week. And then uh, it ends a minute later with uh, Norris's head sliding down the back of the desk. So things did not go well for, Nor- uh, for Norris in, in between those 60 seconds. <laughs> Man, yeah, this, he was on a table trying to get say, his life saved, and he ended with his head like transformed onto a weird spider monkey monster thing. <laughs> so a lot happens in this minute. Um, so uh, yeah, I do love that the beginning of this minute is very kind of subdued and quiet. Like we talked about last week, or you know, the last set of minutes that it was very like suspenseful, and that there's all these things going on where you know, McCready's literally got a bomb in his hand and Clark is getting this knife like he might be ready to attack McCready. And then, and, you know, and obviously in the background, they're trying to save Norris's life, who's who has stopped breathing, who had a heart attack or something. And then, of course, uh, you know, we get this this cool buildup that actually I never noticed until I was watching it this close that before the actual thing happens, all you hear is the flamethrower and that beep of the, like, uh, I guess it's the the heart monitor that just it gets yeah. a little bit louder and then all of a sudden you know he sticks his hands down and they just cut right through his his uh his chest <laughs> man yeah that that is an amazing scene uh you know i was i was watching about how they did this scene and you know mm-hmm. when he has his arms in there and they cut off the fake arms and then it cuts back to instead of what's the actor's name who has his arms uh, cut richard off, dysart know? Richard Dysart. It's not him. It's a it's a double amputee that they hired to be his double, and they put a rubber Richard Dysart mask on the guy. <laughs> yeah, which is great. I didn't know that until I watched that same behind the scenes thing. That because gotta that, watch that. That that's shots only for like it's like less than a second. It's super fast. So you but know, it makes the scene. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's one of those. It's like you know, copper's just gone. Like <laughs> this is like you know, he like the moment his arms go in that in that uh, the giant mouth. Like you know, oh, well, that's one more character out of the picture for sure. <laughs> ain't no, ain't no coming back from that, buddy. Yeah. Um, you know, I got to point out really quick. This is 1982, mm-hmm. and the kind of effects that are going on are like unbelievable on so many levels it's amazing and it's so sad to know that this film was not appreciated when it came out yeah that they really said a bunch of like you know critical responses about how bad like not that it didn't look bad but that it was just like pornography of such Mm -hmm. like you know it's like that's so sad because it's i mean wow the green tendril that green tissue coming out of his neck Mm -hmm. that was amazing especially like nobody wants to put like neon green and stuff like that and stuff like this is it was so original and cool and it was really a a good idea to use that oh yeah yeah i mean we, we talked about it throughout this this podcast that how you know part of what makes this movie so special is not just that the special effects are really good which they are like you know masterpiece level special effects for sure but they're also so unique and creative too they're not just like you know, uh, it's not just like, oh, you know, his mouth opens real big and he bites somebody like, you know, there's all this crazy stuff. And this scene is by far the probably the most intensely weird and creative bit of a uh, bit of special effects in the entire movie, I'd say. And I'll be honest, I haven't watched the whole film in, a, in like maybe four or five years. But is this the very beginning of like the characters realizing this shit ain't real? Like it's like from another planet, like things are crazy. 
Uh, they've known, they've kind of known for a little bit. They just don't like, I guess when they saw Bennings who like, you know, he's the one who runs out into the snow and then he's got like the weird hand and, and screams all weird and they burn him up outside. That's kind of yep. when they start to realize. And then, although they're kind of, they don't really know how to deal with it. But what's really interesting is like that happened like 25 minutes ago in the movie or so. And nothing has nothing um, like monstrous has happened since then. So like we've gone like a really long time, like a third of the movie has passed without any kind of crazy monster effects or anything like that having happened. And even, even before the Bennings thing, the dog, the dog transformation was another, you know, 20 minutes before that. So it's been a really long time since we've seen something really kind of otherworldly like this. So it really comes out of left field and is really shocking for sure when it happens. I remember in the pacing of the whole film that this part is incredibly effective. Yes. Because right when that happens, you're like, literally the shit hit the fan. And um, there ain't no turning back from this point of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) No. Yeah, this is definitely like where the beginning of the end of the movie starts because it really is like the climax when, you know, some bad stuff has happened and we've had like this whole period where the bad guy is not like a monster, but it's really, you know, the other people that they've been kind of fighting amongst themselves and all that paranoia and all that good stuff. But this is when like the crazy monster effects and all that kind of stuff really kick in and go into high gear. Um, And I always, I really wish this is one of those movies and particularly this part that I really wish I could uh, go back and watch for the first time again, because I'd love to just kind of, you know, be a fly on the wall and see my face when I saw this the first time. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, right. I, can't, I can't remember how I reacted, but it's just, it's got to be one of the mo- all time shocking moments in movie history. I think. I got to say, you know, whenever I watch another TV show or a defibrillator scene comes up, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think about this one. <laughs> I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if they just did this thing? Like they did in the thing. That'd be great. It's hard not to. It's it's definitely the most uh, memorable defibrillator scene in, of all time, I'd say. I think it wins that award for sure. <laughs> exactly. No doubt. Um, and, you know, um, I love the sound of the, uh, like you were saying earlier, I think is it the hum of the flamethrower? Yeah. That's going on through the whole thing? Just And then the, and the buzz of the defibrillator? Or is that his heart? I'm not sure. It's not really clear. Yeah, it's just something that like really ratchets up the tension. It just slowly gets louder and louder right before the right before it happens. And you know, I'm looking at the screen where it's paused right at the beginning of the minute, I guess, where he's starting to do the defibrillator. Mm-hmm. And um, I should say, as a set dresser, I really appreciate the shot because it's looking up. And I know the people who built this set; they had to spend a lot of time making sure all those pipes and the ceilings were like perfect. So, oh yeah, it's, it's excellent. Yeah, no, that that's something we actually haven't had a chance to talk too much about in the movie, or, or we just haven't gotten around to talking about. Is just the the sets look fantastic in this movie. Well, the sets are awesome. I'm mean, like, it's like it all had to be a set because there's no way you're going to take a camera crew and like film wherever they do that. That was all done on a stage, and um, yeah, it's always felt so real. Like whenever I think about a Antarctic like uh, place, it's like yeah, that's what it looks like when people research at an Antarctic facility. <laughs> So it's totally everybody's frame of reference for that. Like you have to wonder if, if real scientists who go to Antarctica, they're like, oh, this doesn't look like the thing at all. Like I totally was expecting that. <laughs> you guys, I'm interested in the thing. You should decorate the place like that. <laughs> I also must point out as a uh, as a um, video game and pinball enthusiast that there's a pretty cool pinball machine in the background there too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've talked about that a little bit. It's um, I can't remember. So you can I'm trying to see you can see in the rec room in this one in the background. Or I'm sorry, I might get that mixed up with some of the other scenes I'm watching, but I thought you could see into the rec room here. But yeah, there's a pinball machine in there. So oh, that's yeah. Great. Yeah, we talked about that a little <laughs> bit. They've got it's um 
uh, Heat Wave and Asteroids. That's what it is, obviously. That's awesome. <laughs> Which are great, like, you know, just little kind of in-jokes that go, go with yeah, the movie. Yeah, totally. They totally fit. But yeah, you know, another piece of set dressing that I never actually noticed until watching it this closely. Uh, right when um, when all the tentacles and stuff start shooting out of Norris's chest and all that, uh, the, the kind of spider head and stuff starts to come out. You can see a poster in the background that's like this anatomy drawing of like a human body, but it's all like the veins and stuff, which is a, a oh, awesome. very nice touch. It really kind of goes along with exactly what's happening. It's just a, kind of another one of those things that adds a little bit to the scene. For all of us nerds who are going to break it down minute by minute and stare <laughs> at all the little stuff. That's right. So, um, so yeah, let's, that's uh, awesome. let's, um, let's break down what, what's happening here. So, um, so obviously the, the defibrillator and copper's arms go straight into the chest and we've got that. It's such a weird look. Uh, I always like the way it looks when that skin sort of breaks apart when his hands actually go in. It's, oh yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't know exactly what they use, but it's like this weird kind of th- very thin layer. So it just goes right through. And so it's, it's not even like they're like, he doesn't push against anything at all. It's just like, you know, it's, I don't know. It's just so, it's very unnerving to see, obviously. <laughs> when his, yeah. His arms getting chomped off is just, you know, I was reading it was a uh, gelatin yeah. <laughs> and, um, and wax. Yeah. It's super like, effective. Again, this is 1982. It's like latex is like, it's still like, you know, I can't believe they're still using stuff like that. I was also reading that you just use strawberry jelly and mayonnaise and um, <laughs> other other things like that. So it seems like today there's so many pre-made items already. But back in the day, it was kind of like Rob Botton was only 22 years old when yeah. he worked. I mean, everybody was so young. And that was like people were still just inventing things as they went along. It sounded like there was a couple of mishaps, like when they <laughs> shot the the green stuff out. And they cut, and it was a whole day of shooting had to go away. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that. I I, I took some notes on that because it's such an interesting story. So um, when we get to the part where uh, where Norris's head is like, you know, breaking off of his body, and you've got those, like you mentioned, those that neon green like tendrils, tendrils and yeah. veins and whatever. Uh, so those are made of like melted rubber and bubble gum. I think is what they said, <laughs> which is yeah, crazy. that was awesome. Um, I thought melted bubble gum genius. Yeah, really. Like I would not, not have thought about that for sure. But um, so basically, they had set it up, and I guess because the rubber and stuff was kind of you know they had kind of pre melted it so it would stretch, I guess, or something. There were a lot of like noxious fumes floating around the room, and <laughs> so uh, you know uh, we've talked a lot on the show about how there were a lot of uh, maybe slightly unsafe practices on the set of the thing um so maybe oh, that never is, happens right <laughs> so this is maybe one of those but um so anyways they they you know they'd set it up and they're all ready to go and then suddenly just as they're about to roll don carpenter realized that um you know they had just lit uh this on fire that you know uh in in the sequence of the scene mccready had just you know shot the flamethrower at the at the spider monster coming out of the out of his belly so they're like, oh, we need to get a flame bar so we can have fire coming up from the bottom of the screen as we see the head coming off because there should be fire. You know, we should be kind of seeing it through the fire, right? So they go in to get that to set up. And all the while, while they're doing that, those fumes from the, the stuff they put in the neck are, I guess, filling up the room. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, they, they start rolling the camera and then they, uh, they turn that, that flame bar on and instantly everything just totally goes up in flames. And this this you know, huge effect that they'd spent all this time setting up, just totally gone. (laughs) 
So uh, they had to they had to redo the entire thing from scratch, which I think took them, you know, I, I can't remember what they said, but I feel like it, they said it took them a few days to get it back up and rolling again. So it was like a major mishap. Um, but, you know, I guess the, these are the things we pay for for, you know, this kind of amazing, crazy effect. You know, it had a budget of fifteen million dollars in nineteen eighty two. That's a pretty big budget movie, and then it only produced nineteen million dollars in the box office. Yeah, but um, but you know, I think it's paid its. I think it's paid its uh, people back over time for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just because when you think about how much more that can add to a production, you know, having to redo the entire effect all day. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a major setback, but you know it, it's a testament to the fact that they were willing to do that. That they weren't like, oh, let's just do something else. Because you know it's interesting to note. I didn't really realize this until pretty recently. This whole sequence is not really in the script. Like basically in the script, it's just like Norris is is uh, he had a heart attack. They're trying to resuscitate him, and then he starts turning into a monster, and they burn him. Like that's it. That's like basically all the script <laughs> says. The only thing it has in common is that uh, you know at some point. While they're burning it, uh, McCready realizes that all the little pieces are like, like screaming on their own. Like, you know, that's where he kind of comes to that realization that every part is part of the whole kind of thing. Um, but yeah, the whole effects and this whole kind of sequence of events is all Robotine. You know, that was all the effects team, you know, figuring out, you know, coming up with this idea and then figuring out how to execute it. So it's a real testament that, you know, especially having a major setback like that, that they didn't just say, ah, we'll just do it a different way that's easier or cheaper, you know. Yeah, it's amazing. It, it, like you say, it's crazy how they have that one right part in the script that just says he turns into a monster. They set him on fire. Right. I was. <laughs> I liked how the um the video we keep referencing um about this scene is that John Carpenter had Rob Botten work with Ed Plug. Is that right? Is that his name? Uh, I think it's. Is it Mike? I think it might be Mike Plug. Mike Plug. You're right. Mike Plug. And um, the illustrator who um, he worked in his early days, he was an illustrator for comic books. He helped design Ghost Rider. Yeah. And so he was an amazing illustrator with all these great ideas. And, you know, it sounds like John Carpenter really put it in the hands of designing this kind of idea. And then he would give that to Rob and Rob like, here's what we can make out of these drawings. <laughs> I thought that was that's a really cool way to work there because, you know, like you said, the script says that. And how much more can John Carpenter say, then, you know, make a cool looking monster, man. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be good looking. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's it's really cool to see, you know, um, I think that's one of the signs of, of a really good director, a really good filmmaker is somebody who can kind of put their faith into somebody who really knows what they're doing in, in other parts of the movie. Um, so, you know, to really give give the effects team um, you know, they're, they're kind of leeway to do it the way they want and to come up with these ideas and, and work with other people like Mike Plug, who are, you know, also, you know, from a totally different industry, but, you know, have the same kind of creative drive to come up with something really unique and, and interesting that, you know, just because you're the director of the movie doesn't mean you have the best ideas about every little part of the movie. You got, you know, it's a collaborative process. So, um, yeah, I saw somewhere that someone pointed out that the, the job of the director is just to say yes or no. All day long. That all these people come to like, do you like this? Do you like this? Yes. No. Yes. No. And that's all you do all day. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty, that's an interesting way to look at it. And I think that's probably, that's probably the right way to do it in a lot of cases for sure. As long as you got everyone who's working underneath you is doing a good job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to assemble a good team first. That's the other key part of that. <laughs> I have a good team, you know, and seemed, I think John, um, John Carpenter got lucky with, uh, with his special effects team. I mean, they really kicked ass. No and kidding. Took it to the next level and 
in, in, in the year it came out. You know, I was also surprised to see that the the big movie of 1982 was E.T. Yep. Oh, my God. <laughs> Even as a kid, I didn't like E.T. It was so, so boring. It was like, man, we got Star Wars and stuff like that. So why do we need E.T.? <laughs> See, that's funny. I didn't like E.T. as a kid because I thought it was scary. <laughs> E.T. terrified me when I was a little kid. <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street terrified me a few years later. and Oh, yeah. It took a while to get back into horror films. But by the time I was a teenager, it was all right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so let's let's break down a little bit more uh, what's going on here. So after after the, uh, the defibrillator uh, goes in and cuts off Copper's arms, and he's kind of out of the picture at that point, we get this weird, like, huge tentacle thing that like bursts out of his stomach and we've got this it's like a monstrous norris head with these weird spider legs and it's still attached to this like umbilical cord thing kind of that's coming out of norris and then uh you know i never noticed until watching it you know 15 times or whatever that uh in addition to those spider legs, the Norris thing that's on the ceiling also has like these, I think they're dog legs, like down at the yeah. bottom. Yeah, I was noticing that too. That's why I kind of thought it was like a monkey thing because it has those weird legs dangling off the back. <laughs> You're right. They're like some dog's back legs or something. Oh, it's so creepy. So, yeah, so that I, that's a great looking monster for sure. That's, uh, you know, I've been, I asked a lot of guests on the show, like what their favorite version of the thing is. And uh, in almost every case, it's been either this one or the spider head one that, that we have coming up in a few minutes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this one is particularly disturbing because it's like this gross looking version of Norris's head where he's got like this nasty looking hair that's like half formed and his mouth is all like distorted with these like sharp, gross teeth. And yeah, those kind of weird dangly legs. And it's creepy too, because his, his whole body is just like this kind of big worm or something. Uh, big with, worm. <laughs> with the legs sticking out and everything. And just the fact that it's like stuck on the ceiling is so just so weird and like unnerving and, and gross. The whole thing is just kind of awesome. Yeah, you know, and I wonder how much of the design goes into like making it so they can actually do it. Because, right. you know, it all had to be practically there. And then some, sometimes you think, well, maybe they have that part of the arm or the leg of the thing there so they could control the whole thing mm-hmm. through a cable. But um, it's it's like nothing else before or after, really, the, all the effects and the kind of cool leeway the special effects department gets to be artistic with it all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it was, it's, another, it's another character of the whole film. They are like expressing that character through their special effects. Oh, absolutely. And it's especially important in this movie because it's not just one monster that shows up throughout the movie. It's all these different versions of the creature and, and you know, that's made out of different actors, too. So there's a lot of like body molds and stuff that had to be made and all that kind of fun stuff, too. So, yeah, I actually didn't mention it. They um, at the beginning when, you know, just when the defibrillator stuff happens, Charles Hallahan, who plays Norris, they said he spent 10 days in uh, Rob Bottin's shop getting molded and having all these pictures taken. And they said uh, that Rob was so um, such a perfectionist that they even matched the uh, the chest hair pattern from Charles Hallahan, which is it's insane. Sexy. Yeah, very. <laughs> um, they said when, uh, when Richard Dysart, uh, guy that plays Copper, when he walked into the room for the set and saw the, saw the setup, he actually thought it was, it was uh, Charles Hallahan laying on the table. He didn't, he didn't believe that it was a fake body, that it was that <laughs> real looking, which is pretty awesome to even be sitting there in the real thing and, and, you know, not realize it's not real. That's crazy. Man, great work, great work. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm, I was trying to kind of look at it and see how they might have done some of the uh, 
the actual kind of puppeteering and stuff. Yeah, and I think like you mentioned, I'm, I'm guessing there was some kind of, you know, cables and stuff going up through that kind of umbilical cord or whatever you want to call it to maybe control those legs that are flopping around. Yeah, um, they could be that. Um, I also was reading about how they had uh, hand puppets, marionettes, maybe some radio control devices, mm-hmm. like from like, like kind of like similar to our, like a RC car controls, yeah. hydraulics, you know, all sorts of pull cables. Who knows? Probably, a, I bet you there's so many more puppeteers worked on this than they did E.T. Oh, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I bet there's at least four or five, at least four or five guys controlling this. I mean, I think I, I, I can't remember how many it was, but I want to say it was like 10 people controlling the dog thing in the, in the earlier scene. So it's probably even more than that here. Who knows? You know, I'm going to, while we're talking here, I'm going to look it up in there in a movie database, of course, because I love doing this. But I bet you there are some puppeteers that worked on that movie that are like, they also do the Muppets. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I bet you're right. You probably had some professional level puppeteers working on this show. Oh, yeah, there had to have been. Um, yeah, because, I mean, just looking at just this part of the creature, you've got so many kind of moving parts between, like, the legs and the, the weird umbilical thing. And um, and then the head, I'm guessing there's maybe, uh, you know, that maybe above the ceiling, there's maybe a guy up there that's actually controlling the head, like reaching down and controlling the head, which would probably, you know, like you said, sometimes you know, the design comes after figuring out how to do it. And maybe that's why it's on the ceiling is so they can hide another puppeteer to get up there and control that head. But yeah, the head's got a, you know, like a very expressive mouth and the eyes move around and then the head kind of, you know, wriggles around itself too. So there's like all these moving parts and things happening that are so, that make it seem so real. You know, yeah, it'd be great to see some pictures from behind the scenes on the thing because I bet you there's just, 20 people laying on the ground everywhere controlling some part of all those pieces. <laughs> yeah. I had to, I've seen it at one point. I don't remember where I'm going to have to try and find it. There's um somebody uh, drew a, a, a picture, like a cartoon of how they, how they did uh, the second part of the scene with the head, with Norris's head on his body, you know, tearing itself off and falling to the floor. And I think it said they had like, they had like three or four guys. Cause they had, one guy puppeteering the head itself, like making the tongue move and all that stuff. And then they had another guy like pumping the, that green goo, uh, you know, gooey blood out and stretching that stuff. And then they had another guy <laughs> under the table who had like a stick who was actually pushing the head off. So it would rip off the, the body and all that stuff. So it's just like all these people that had to do exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. And, you know, this is not something you can redo very easily. So they all had to probably practice and coordinate and, there's probably all kinds of little little signals they have to give each other and, you know, all kinds of stuff to, uh, to make this come off without a hitch. You know, that is some stressful stuff right there. Yeah, because everyone's waiting for you to make sure it happens right. And if it don't happen right, everyone doesn't get to go home. <laughs> <laughs> We've been there, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, geez, we got to make sure it's all done right so everyone can be happy and go home. You know, um, Stan Winston looks like he even came in, did a little bit of additional oh, yeah. makeup effects, uncredited at the time, but he did get a thank you in the end. Yeah, he did. Uh, he did a lot of the dog stuff. And then because Robotine was like exhausted to the point of needing to be hospitalized. Um, so because they, he was working like 20 hours a day for months and months. Um, so, yeah, he came on and did some of the dog stuff. But, he, you know, he knew that this film was really it was Robotine's show. So he didn't want to take credit away from him. And he didn't ask for a credit, which is pretty nice thing to do considering he made one of the coolest parts of the movie too <laughs> man you hear nothing but the best things about stan winston yeah so that's good to know that's good to know he was like a, hel- a helper and came in and made it badass yeah for sure 
the only other note I had uh, specifically about, uh, you know, the effects that happened in this scene is that uh, I think it might have been in the commentary that John Carpenter says the first time they shot the part where those the tentacles are first kind of starting to fly out of that the open mouth in the stomach um, that they had to redo it because it looked like a Vegas fountain the first time they did it. And it was like everybody was just laughing at it. <laughs> it was like too yeah. much. Sometimes that happens, and you don't, sometimes you don't know how to control something, and blast you do too much, and it's like, oops, oops, okay, we're starting over. Yeah, I would guess that it's especially on something like this where you don't know, you know, where you know the thing's got to break open first, and then the mouth's got to chomp, and then like, okay, now we get to try out this blood spurting thing and see what happens, like you know, and I'm sure that everybody's just trying to shoot it and get out of there, like you said, so you know, they're going to just give it a try on the first roll and see, see what happens. And yeah, sometimes it doesn't work out. You know, I would love to find out who was the onset dresser for the thing, because he would probably be the person leading, cleaning everything up so they can <laughs> get ready and fix it and do again. It was probably that a would... very fun job on this movie. I'm sure lots of icky, nasty stuff to have to clean up. They'd have to get a special, special person yeah. to be in there helping. I mean, that would be crazy. I'm picturing guys in hazmat suits, probably. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, it's just strawberry jelly and mayonnaise. This is disgusting. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, so this this minute goes all the way through that head kind of sliding off the table. And that's one of my favorite bits, too, actually, is just as it's sliding off. I, I don't know how they're puppeteering the head at that point. But even as it's, like, barely connected to the body anymore, it's still, like, that mouth is moving around and the tongue is shooting out. And it's, like... Just super nasty looking, and that—that's one of the most creepy moments to me. Is that very, the very end of this minute with the head falling off the table, and it's still, you know, moving around like that. You know, I, I love that the actors complained that they felt like John Carpenter didn't pay enough attention to them as it did the um, special effects, because like you can tell, actually, I mean, you don't <laughs> need to—you don't need to tell Kurt Russell what to do anymore. I mean, you've been making movies of Kurt Russell for so many years, but like. The effects are so detailed. There's so much like shown about them. You can tell like, you know, they were the they're the title character of the film or the effects is the thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the first thing you think about when you think about this movie, for sure, is, you know, all the special effects. But I would I would argue this scene in particular is probably the thing that people think about the most when you think about this movie. <laughs> that that and then Wilford Brimley. Oh, of course. Well, you know. The Brimley. <laughs> well, what's, what was he the spokesperson for in the 80s? Uh, Quaker Oats. That's right. That's, like, that's the oatmeal guy. <laughs> to me, he'll always be the uh, the diabetes guy. That was and that too. <laughs> when I when I realized that they were one and the same, that, that he was also Blair from the thing, I about lost my mind. I could not believe that. <laughs> it's great. It's, it's, it's one of those funny things about this film. It's great. So, um, yeah, so I think we've, we've kind of covered, uh, most of the, the craziness of this, this, uh, one of the best minutes of the movie for sure. But, uh, anything else you wanted to mention about minute 76 before we, uh, go to the next one? I'm ready for the next one, man. Let's go. Right on. Cool. So, uh, yeah, so that will wrap up minute 76, but in the meantime, listeners, you can always go to the thingminute.com for full show notes on every episode, including links to anything we talked about. So, uh, for example, that video that we've been talking about that kind of goes behind the scenes and shows how they did some of this awesome stuff. I'll definitely post a link to that. So everybody can check that out as well. Um, but yeah, make sure to check all that out and then come back tomorrow for another episode of the thing minutes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. 
You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out. Thank you.